the next to last sermon of our series on Genesis where all summer long we've been talking about gifts that we see that God gives to us in this book of Genesis and today we take a look at the gift of a transformed life. It's a rather lengthy reading so I'll read this for us today. I hope you'll follow along in your bulletin insert or your own Bible. And I'll begin to read at Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. I don't know if it's true for you, but when I read this story in Genesis 45, this powerfully personal story where Joseph makes himself known to his brothers and where his father, who has believed his son to be dead for the past 22 years, all of a sudden finds out that his son is alive, it reminded me 
of that so-called parable, the prodigal son that Jesus tells that we find recorded in Luke 15. Because we have a son who was lost and is now found, a son who was dead but is alive again. And this story in Genesis 45 is just like that parable in that we see a gracious God. A gracious God who loves His people so much. Of course, the name that we call that parable is really a misnomer. I like what Fred Craddock says about that in his commentary on Luke when he reminds us that the focus of the parable is the Father because Jesus begins that parable by saying there was a man. There was a man that had two sons. And so he calls it the parable of the loving father in his commentary, which is a much better title. And that parable speaks to us so forcefully because we see the love that that father has for both his sons but we especially see the love he has for this prodigal, this, this son who has made so many mistakes. And yet the father, when he sees him coming, even at a long distance, throws off all fatherly decorum and goes running to him and hugs him and kisses him and makes sure that he understands by all the gifts that he gives to him that he's still part of his family and that he's still loved. And then he throws a great party for him. And if we just think about it, we've all experienced homecomings like that, or I hope we have, whether we were a prodigal or not. I remember one such good homecoming in my life. I was 20 years old and had decided that it would be a smart thing to ride my motorcycle all the way across the country by myself to San Diego, California and meet up with a cousin of mine who was stationed out there in the Navy. And he had a bike. He wanted to ride back to North Carolina. So I would ride out, we would meet up, and we would come back. It was only about a two-week trip, but we experienced several hardships along the way, two of which involved his motorcycle breaking down. Anytime you have a vehicle break down, what do you have to do? You have to find money to fix it. And I only had so much cash, and he only had so much cash. Now, for you younger people, you got to remember, this was the day before there was an ATM on every corner, and, and I didn't have a credit card. He didn't have a credit card. Our money started to run low, and there were some other issues that made that trip a little more, shall we say, uh, adventurous, than expected, but that's for another time. And I was getting back into town finally to Statesville, North Carolina on a Sunday night. We'd been riding all day long trying to make it back, and I was trying personally to make it back in time for church because I knew that's where my family would be and a lot of my friends. And so I was driving like a maniac all day to get back in time and as I turned off I-40 and going up New Sterling Church Road, I could see the church in the distance, 
And I knew I was running late, and about that time I saw my daddy's car pull out and leave, and I saw my brother's car pull out right behind him, and I was screaming to them inside my helmet, you know, look, look in your rearview mirror. Can't you see my headlight? This is me. Turn around, turn around. Well, they did notice, and they turned around, and they came back, and we had a love fest right there in the parking lot of the church, especially my mother, since she didn't think she'd ever see me alive again. And I can still remember how good it felt to see them after all the hardships we'd had on that trip and to hear my brother say, you want me to ride your bike home for you and you can drive my car since a special part of my body was feeling the way it was. That was the best words that I could have heard at that point in time. The point is we can see something even more heart-wrenching than your typical homecoming story here in this text before us. Because Jacob believes that his son Joseph is dead. That he was torn apart by by live animals 22 years ago. At least that was the story he received from his own sons and he saw the, the bloody clothes to prove it. And all of a sudden he finds out his son is alive. Can you imagine the shock, the disbelief, and and then the, the happiness and the joy that floods over him? And we can see all of that in the text if we read between the lines. Jacob almost has a heart attack. The text says his heart grew numb. I don't know what kind of medical term that is, but it, it tells me that most likely he fainted. He had to be revived. And then he didn't really want to believe the words and didn't think he could believe the words, but yet here were all of these Egyptian wagons to see to carry him back to the land of Egypt where not only was his son alive, but he was second in command of the entire Egyptian empire. It's news that's too good to be true. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now what you and I have to see is that just like the the so-called parable of the prodigal son, this story in Genesis 45 is, is all about God. It's not a story about Joseph. We many times call it a Joseph story, but it's a story about God, this providential God who's been working behind the scenes all along and in His own time to bring about good for His people, to make sure that they have a way of life even in these days of death that a a world famine produces. Three different times in the early verses of our text, Joseph makes it clear that God is the one to whom should be given all glory. Because not only is He sovereign, but He's also providential and is able and willing to bring about His purposes to fruition either through good or through bad. Look at verse 5. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God 
God sent me before you to preserve life. And look at how he mentions God in 7 and 8 as well. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's a great verse because of the way the wording is, but God. Think about all the times we can see in Scripture those but gods that are happening all the time. Many times we don't even know until it happens and God shows us. As an example, think about Peter and his vision in Acts 10 about how all of a sudden he can eat anything. That's what the vision is telling him. And when he explains this to Cornelius the centurion, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with anyone or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. We can see the same sort of thing in Romans 5 where Paul says why one will hardly die for a righteous man. But God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever take the time, you can search and find those but God statements all through the Scriptures reminding us that He's in control and has His own way and His own timetable in order to bring His will to pass. Maybe in your life you're tired of waiting for God to grant some special request. Maybe it's a spouse you've been praying for. Maybe it's a spouse for one of your children or one of your grandchildren that you're praying for. Maybe it's that better job you would like or that health concern or a breakthrough in a strained relationship. There are all sorts of things that we ask of God, but we have to remember that His timetable is not always our own. It takes Joseph 13 years in slavery and prison combined before God lifts him up out of that. Why should it have to take 13 years? I don't know. Why does it take 20 or 30 years before God grants some prayer that you've been making all of that time? Why are some prayers never answered to our satisfaction? They're answered, but not to our satisfaction. We can only say because God knows best. He only desires good for His people, and according to Jeremiah 32, He rejoices in doing good for His people. And it's not just God's timing that's often hard for us to understand, but also His ways. Because as He makes it so clear in that wonderful 55th chapter of the prophet Isaiah, He says that our ways are not His ways. That His thoughts are not our thoughts. In this larger Joseph story, we can see that clearly in chapters 42 and 43 when his brothers have come to Egypt to buy food for their families and as they begin to return home and and, and set up camp for the first night, they find all of this money in their sacks, money that they've just paid for food in Egypt. And they decide that God has done this to punish them. 
That's why they believe it's happened. And they think the Egyptians will find out and the worst will happen. But when they finally return to Egypt again, they admit this to Joseph's servant that they had all of this extra money in their sacks and the servant says, You're God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. What they interpreted as God's punishment is actually a blessing in disguise. We don't always understand what God's doing in the world around us because His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts, but He's working all the same and He's working for us in a providential way. This is what this climax to this, all of this Joseph material here in chapter 45 is communicating. As one commentator put it, God's sovereignty and blessing can be found in what appear to be the most terrible crimes and the most disastrous circumstances. This does not mean that God approves of those crimes or that He enjoys bringing disaster into our lives. It's simply a testimony of God's ability to bring good out of evil. And we see Him do that over and over again, all through Scripture. In fact, we come to see that there is no choice that you and I can make, however sinful or fallen it may be, that can ultimately interfere with His plan. And we see this so often, especially where God is bringing life into the midst of death like we see here in Genesis. That's why, for me at least, Joseph is what we might call a type of Christ. I mean, think how Joseph maintains integrity and righteous living, not only in the face of temptation, but also in the midst of unfair treatment. Remember how he sees God at work in every facet of his life and makes sure that others understand that as well. And even after all of the suffering and loss of of who he used to be, this favored son in this patriarchal family, even after all of the pain and anguish and, and forsakenness from his God that he must have been feeling, God lifts him up and allows him to give life to nations of people. If we understand his life as expressed in Genesis, we can see that he actually underwent a death of sorts. And in the end, God highly exalted him. Now, isn't that what the Apostle Paul says about Jesus? In Philippians 2, we can read that Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the story of Jesus in in many ways proclaims the same good news as this story we find 
about Joseph, but even more so. Because though it looks like all is lost and there's no light at the end of the tunnel, joy comes with the morning. When they hear those words, He is not here. He's risen, as He said. Even in the midst of the crucifixion and death, God's power is able to create life. God's power is able to resurrect the dead. God's purpose can bring about a newness far above and beyond anything we can think or imagine. Joseph had that tiny little dream, you know, way back when he was a young boy. You remember that? Where his father and brothers bowed down to him. Do you think he ever imagined that he would be ruler over the land of Egypt? I don't think so. And just like in Joseph's life, it's a newness that obliterates the past, that redefines the present, and opens up a whole new future, which is beyond anything we can think. It's that providential and sovereign quality of God that allows Joseph's family to have a future. I mean, think about how messed up that family would be moving forward. All of those brothers knowing that they had had banished their own brother to slavery. And yet they have a future because of God's transforming power. They have a future so that they are a blessing to all the nations. And it's that same providential and sovereign quality of God that makes us so much more than we used to be. So much more. Isn't that what Paul's talking about? In 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. And Paul says all this is from God. But perhaps even more well-known than that good news is that that we find in Lamentations 3 where we read that the steadfast love of God never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And then he says, Great is thy faithfulness. Joseph, with his transformed life, had it been written yet, could have quoted that verse every day. The point is, with our transformed lives, can't we quote the same thing? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases in my life. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every day. Say it with me. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.